There are 574 tribal nations represented across the United States. They each have their own cultural richness, way of living, and customs. They also have health disparities and trouble with the acquisition of resources. Tribal Health, the podcast, wants to shed light on them and bring solutions available to improve access for tribal and indigenous communities. And now your hosts, Melody Lewis, Mario Trujillo, and Morgan Haynes. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Tribal Health, the podcast. It's me, Melody, and we also have Mario on the call. Say howdy, Hello. Mario. And we have an amazing guest with us today, and I'll go ahead and turn it over to him to do an introduction. Hello, everyone. My name is Dylan Shehey. I'm a tribal councilman from the Pueblo of Zia. I'm also a founding board member of Pueblo Development Commission, so advocacy NGO, also a partner at an impact consultancy called Zia Impact, where we're focused on sustainability, renewable infrastructure, and a circular economy. Also, was a, previously was a professional runner, went to attend the University of Colorado Boulder, dual major in history and integrative physiology, and was also appointed a health advisor to the public tribal nations of New Mexico and working towards becoming a medical doctor. You've had a boring life, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you're always on an adventure. I'm excited for this podcast and to meet you because if you've been listening to our most recent podcast, everyone listening to this one, it's turned into a New Mexican series. And Zia Puebla is a beautiful Puebla, so I'm excited to hear more about your story as well. And most definitely. And thank you for inviting me on, Mario and Melody. So I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Dylan, I, I have so many questions. And I'm sure Mario does too. <laughs> like, where do we start? I think I, right off the bat, like, I'm really curious to learn about your community and how that informs informed you and your profession, your healthcare profession. Oh, man, that's actually a really good question. The Pueblo is a very small community, less than a thousand people. But through our oral histories, where we used to be 15 to 20,000 people. And growing up in a small, tiny community, I grew up running and that was where my journey began was as, as I look at going into to school. I actually didn't really have as much advisement as probably most people on what I wanted to do. And seeing how I was growing up gave me the idea of what I needed to go into. And that was, and being a runner, I really focused on my mental health and emotional health. And that's what helped motivate me to pursue a higher education. I didn't really have that sense of direction yet. and Sports, being an athlete, really helped mold it that for me. You didn't really see many other Native student athletes competing at a, at a Division One level. So that sparked my motivation as well to be that person to help other Native student athletes that want to achieve those goals as well. That's awesome. And you're, I think, a verb that or a word that I use in most of our podcasts is like an active change maker. And that's so awesome that you recognize your own skills and your own passions and then also saw it as an opportunity to be a change maker in the view of, of the indigenous point of being an athlete and showing showing younger people too that, hey, pursue your passions. Exactly. I, I, I want to piggyback off a little bit about being a student athlete. I too was a student athlete, super retired way a long time ago. Basketball player, of course, red balls live. Yep. I have a niece that ran at ASU for cross country. And you touched a little bit on mental health and how that has, I think with student athletes, 
mental health is like a big thing. Like, I don't think you could practice all day long and eat well and train good. And mentally, if you're not ready and prepared to take on whatever the day is going to bring you that day in your student athlete schedule, I, I guess I didn't really realize how much attention that you have to give to your mental health ability. And I think with student athletes and athletes in general, I think for me, I view sports and running too as a form of supporting my mental health as a coping mechanism or stress reliever for me. And running was my most favorite thing to do, just get lost in the run. Exactly. And going back to touching back onto that, how I, my perspective from growing up on, on the res, that was something that running was a sacred act. We use it within our ceremonies. It's what connects us to the energies around us. And if you look at exercise as one of the leading things that helps with men- mental stability and emotional health. And through our traditional ways as indigenous people, we, it's a land-based. And so going out for a run, greeting those energies, that's what brings us that healthy lifestyle, brings us that, that perseverance to move forward. And for me, that's exactly what I, I lived my life through was running that gave me that sanity. And, but when you come across a challenge, as far as you get injured, you know, what happens there? What happens to that student athlete? And that was an experience that really molded me on the work that I do today is that I got injured. I was running as a professional runner. And every morning, my routine was to wake up and go greet the sun and go pray. And when I didn't have the ability to do to run, that connection broke a little bit. And it broke me in a sense. That was my traditional way of life. And so when I started thinking about the mental health gaps within that are face our indigenous communities. I was like, I need to be that voice and talk these resources that we need. And from our perspective as indigenous people will be a lot different what we need. So I went through my own experience on how to heal and had to part ways with my professional running career and return home and reinvest myself into my culture again. Because with that disconnection, like it really did separate me from my traditional. And so I had to really be gentle with myself and patient and reintegrate, you know, what I grew up learning in my traditional family household. And from that, was able to persevere and make it through. And now I've been working with health policy on the federal level with the National Congress of American Indians. Also was appointed as a health committee member for the All Public Council of Governors here in New Mexico. And a lot of the things that we discuss are those behavioral health resources that we desperately And as you see during the pandemic, that was definitely needed. With the behavioral health side of things within the state of New Mexico, what what are the trends that you're seeing? I know that's a broad statement, but as New Mexico has so many different reservations and pueblos and each community will have different needs. What are you seeing in that field within New Mexico? And like coming from my own community, and I do look into others as well. And you hear stories of, especially during the pandemic, young kids in my or people in my generation losing their life because they don't have those resources or don't know who to talk to or how to talk to those individuals. And that's a a trend that we're trying to work towards too, or try to encourage that cultural sensitivity, that training. What does that look like in working with our tribal communities instead of 
going out by myself, went out and looked for those resources because I needed it. But instead of getting that assistance directly, I had to train that individual on how to work with me, what my perspective, my mindset was because they didn't have that traditional or cultural knowledge. So it's a push, you know, give that general education because a lot of our traditional ways of life are held in house. It's some communities are a closed culture and don't really share those other two traditional medicines. So we're looking at ways to improve on that as well and get more people that training that they need to work with our tribal within our tribal communities. That's in the work in progress. Just recently, I was working alongside an organization that does advocacy for water rights in their community from New Zealand. And we had some visitors from the Maori community come visit us here in Arizona and talking about how they have stewarded their water and how they how they build those, like that their infrastructure within their community to protect their water when they're doing business with outside entities like their governments. It was so amazing to hear, but I think one of the most important things that that I took away from that, because I'm from the Fort Mojave Indian Reservation and we're people of the river. That's our community. And we were talking about like how most westernized systems, and you touched on this a little bit, but maybe I want you to speak a little bit more on it, but we touched on a little bit or we spoke about the importance of the river's health in comparison to our people's health. And that westernized systems don't really understand that. They don't get that because of the use of water, the, what do you call it? The commod, like using water as a commodity versus a living being. Yeah. And, but yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I know you've mentioned how running has support you culturally, but also how that relates to behavioral health. Like I was saying about everything's interconnected. We live in this natural world where any everything that we do is to make sure that the environment is healthy as well. And that, that health feeds onto the people that are amongst them. A lot of our ceremonies utilize water as a form to, to spread that sacred being or health to for future generations and the current generations in li- living with the legacies of our ancestors and water like you said it's not a it's turning into a commodity it's going to be the new oil let's say because it's so scarce but for us like i said land-based culture we utilize water for our ceremonies for traditional dry land farming here in, in the southwest and it's also a form of place where we can cleanse ourselves to go pray. And in turn, it's that overall circular cycle. We give, we get, or we give and we receive, and there's no really no take. And this is ours. It continuously moves. And that's something that most people don't understand or maybe don't see. And right now, if you look at what's going on with the traditional ecological knowledge, more tribal leaders, traditional leaders being at the forefront of guiding some of these departments and stewarding the lands that we've stewarded for thousands of years through our oral histories. I think we have a lot to to give and people have a lot to learn as well from us. I also think over, you're a tribal leader, right? And I think just being in the position that you're in now, even that, like, even us, like that, that are just living in these Western, I so I live in the city, right? Living in an urban indigenous area of being able to tell our stories and kind of plant the seed with these Western systems to understand our perspective 
and for you advocate for our people in a way of sharing our knowledge and trying to have a seat at the table because oftentimes decisions are being made on our behalf. And I think that in your work, I'm looking at and just really talking about you're in policy reform, you're in advocacy where as a tribal leader, economically, you're doing a lot of economy building for your people and having to bridge economies too on that end and understanding all that. But one of the things I had mentioned a lot is that in healthcare industry, oftentimes in tribal communities, they're part of the economic development plan. And do you have any thoughts or feedback on that about healthcare industry as it relates to your business and economic development? And that's something from community that this answer is going to be so different Mm -hmm. coming from my own. It's been tough because a lot of our tribes go through the Indian Health Service. And even in Zia, a doctor will come out a certain amount of days out of the month. And then that's when you have time to go in and see that individual. Or if it's, if you're in dire need, most of these communities or tribal members have to drive 30 to 30 minutes to an hour one way to get seen. And if it's an emergency, that time frame between can be critical if that individual is or get the attention that they need. And one of the things that I continuously want to work on is ensuring that we have a clinic and a medical professional there all the time. What the pandemic has definitely shown me through is a lot of our tribes are hit with diabetes. Some of those individuals need to have dialysis. And one of the things is medical equipment. During the pandemic, a lot of those individuals have to go out and seek get dialysis treatment and therefore are increased exposure to the virus at that time. And a lot of People that I knew, my grandparents passed from that. I lost a lot of family members from the virus because a lot of those medical needs were needed outside of the community. And rather than having it in-house and being there and not having that increased exposure would have probably saved a lot more lives. Having the funding and those economic development opportunities to create this essential in any community. I don't think anyone, any one of us, there's a few communities that do have hospitals and that are regularly there, which is amazing. And that's something that I seek to have for my community. And that's one of the reasons why I'm going into the medical field is to be that person to to create that safety for my people as well. That is non-traditional part because a lot of the viruses that we see and sicknesses that we see from a different part of the world where we have our traditional medicines, but it's totally different. Yeah. First of all, I'm so sorry that happened to you and your family and community that that is so rough because of this pandemic, I think, shook a lot and then also showed us what we need as well. Because as we look at healthcare to our reservations, tribal communities, there's an increased need for higher healthcare standards, right? And so we would send out critical care response teams to, I think we went on 25 deployments. So we sent out a critical care response team, which consisted of an ICU doc, CCRNs, and a respiratory therapist to these facilities because these facilities weren't equipped and they weren't prepared for a pandemic. And some facilities are privileged in the way, or some reservations are privileged to have a facility or to have a hospital. And a lot of tribes are not equipped with even building. And I think too, like, although the pandemic 
shook a lot of our lives, took away a lot of our people in our family and in our communities, we were then shown that we need to increase our standards. Like the standards are not where they should be. We need to have bare minimum healthcare available. And seeing the CRT deployment teams go to these different facilities and different standards at each reservation and community, we we saw that need in person. And these these doctors that were on the reservation didn't even know how to care for a critically ill patient. And you saw that kind of hit your community deeper because you didn't have that access other than a physician come, what did you say, a few times a month? Yeah, normally it's like a pretty much scheduled when the, the medical doctor will come out and see patients. Or so oftentimes we'll just go into the main facility in Albuquerque, which like I said, is 45 hour drive one way. And like you said, especially during a crisis like that with the pandemic, that's exposing, that's increased exposure. And so many pueblos in New Mexico are under sh- shutdown and lockdown. Exactly. And to try and get clearance, even go get something basic like dialysis is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. And uh, it's been definitely an eye opener for healthcare in, in general, like with the needs that we need. <laughs> so desperate for a lot of the individuals that were we lost were key cultural bearers that hold on to a lot of knowledge. And when that happened, that's, if you look at a bookshelf, that's one big book or in, or in some cases, an encyclopedia of keeping on traditional ways of life and those ceremonies and songs. And so I can't even continue to think about all the resources that some communities don't have and that we continuously, well, continue to fight for and advocate for that, that we desperately need. And talking about health and all this, it's, it can be overwhelming. And because this story, like especially mine, is everybody has that type of story, especially coming out of this pandemic. It's hard to hear. And some of it's not even through the virus. It's those mental, mental health and some that we're already dealing with certain illnesses before. And so I, my, the strain that, that I, I use is those that have gone. And I don't want to foresee any others going without me doing all the best that I can to, to provide. Um, totally. Yeah, you yeah. know, I think this podcast, which is, I think, which inspires me to have these conversations is because your story needs to be told, right? I think this biggest piece of this whole entire thing is building awareness, sharing stories, and giving a platform and access or giving up to highlight these unique challenges that each community has, right? 574 nations across the U.S. You'll hear me say this on every single podcast and every single one of them is different. Like the infrastructure is different, the access to resources, that the access to funding, location, all of those things play a factor into to serving their community, everything, every part of serving their community. I too come from a small community, Mojave is the, my community. I think we have 1,400 members, but I can count. I can literally count how many elders and knowledge holders we have and probably name them all by name. You know? And exactly. every, yeah, everyone knows everyone. And it's so when you lose somebody in your community, it's felt yeah. like a lot. And because you grew up with those folks. And, exactly. And yeah. this is, a lot of the conversations I've been having with like family members is you feel like you're getting through one losing somebody, but all of a sudden there's another person. So it's like, you feel like you never get through it or you're feel like you're there. And then another one hits, another one hits. And it's just been an ongoing thing for the past three, four years. Same. 
Exact same. Like I I keep telling folks too, because I don't think also, I think this is something very important to highlight is that grief and again, back to mental health within our tribal communities, especially the small ones. It's almost like uh, if I were to talk to a non-Indigenous person here, some of them are experiencing deaths that have impacted them once, twice in their lifetime or hasn't experienced it. And I'm like, for us, I said, I literally could probably go through one, unfortunately, maybe once a month at the least, at the minimum. And I think just understanding grief and that how we, again, varies from every community to every community, but healing is quite important. And we, I think all of the things that you are doing are quite, are just, I don't know, I just could extend gratitude and appreciation for you and your role because it's a lot to carry and a lot to have to steward and navigate for our little communities. You know what I mean? Exactly. Going off of that stress, depression, and all of that destroys our body on the molecular level. Going out, being out in nature and sport or any type of movement, prayer is what's going to help reconnect us as well. And that's going to be our strength, ultimately helping health and wellness everything, all that. So, and I think too, oh, I'm sorry. You bring such a interesting point of view to both sides, right? Because you saw how it affected your community. Like you saw at first level and with what you're doing on the advocacy side and then in a medical school, you see the other end and opportunity to improve, but then also you see your community and you say, we're rich in community, we're rich in culture. This is what needs to be improved, but our community can help in the grand scheme of things, our country's healthcare. Exactly. And if you look at science, science is catching up on a lot of things that indigenous ways of life have always been. At one point in time, it'll balance itself out and bring all that energy to our communities. Absolutely. Yeah, this, this is awesome. Yeah, I'm excited to see what you do and continue to do for not just your Pueblo, for the other Pueblos in New Mexico and our country's healthcare. It's needed, as we saw during the pandemic, and you know what to do. And to be honest, this conversation is also what I needed. I also need that energy to keep me going. So I thank you for inviting me. This is great. And I'm so happy that I could jump in with you. You know that one of our healing tools for Indigenous people is humor, right? My favorite question I want to end off on this note is asking what your favorite Reds slang is and use it in a sentence. I should have told you to prepare for this one because sometimes I'm like, "Ah, which one would I use? But I'll just share one of mine just because this will give you some time to think about it. But we have one in Mojave. I use this one all the time. Like, because my brothers are just, I am surrounded by brothers and they do a sound every time. And I'm like, tell them, like, I went to the gym this morning and I squatted this much. And my brothers would go, what? And you did it. And it's just like this whole thing. right? And they do this whole sound and they throw their head back. And I'm like, serious, I did it. They're like, I did it. So I don't know how to use this in a sentence unless I'm like telling a story or be like something that's like, Unbelievable, and you say, hey, hey. But uh, <laughs> one of the things that I think everybody likes to use too is uh, those pickup lines. Hey, baby, what's your clan? Yeah. And you're like, hey, or whatever. Hey. Yeah. Yes. And that one has so many different meanings, huh, depending on what tone you use yeah. it or like how you use it. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I love that. 
Thank you for sharing and thank you for joining us. I have one more question to end our New Mexico series or continue our New Mexico series. Now, Dylan, the most important New Mexican question out there is red or green? Oh, man, it has to be. I say both this red and green in in my language, and it's coming straight off the fields that we plant in Zia. So that's where it's at. So I invite you both to come out for our feast day, August 15th, to try some of that homegrown green and red chili. Awesome. We'll get it Christmas style then at your yeah. feast. Love it. Some good stuff. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for joining, Dylan. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Tribal Health, the podcast. And we will see you next time. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Tribal Health, the podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's guest. For the show notes, resources, and more, please visit podcast. .tribalhealth.com. If you want to learn more about how tribal health can be a solution to health disparities, please visit us at www.tribalhealth.com.